0: Welcome back to our uh, final episode of the series that we've been working through called, I've Heard That. Uh, we've been looking at the incredible level uh, of scripture that has uh, sunk into, permeated our culture that shows up in idioms, uh, it shows up in phrases, in, in, in sayings, and images that have just become part of the common language, part of our vernacular. The first thing that stands out to me as I've gone through these things is the incredible artistry that exists in scriptural language, right? It's not just blah, 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 don't do that. You have to do this. This is poetry. It's creative. It's, there's beauty and it's, it's uh, there's ingenuity and in it. it fills this collection of ancient historical manuscripts that too often just gets written off as just a, just a bunch of ancient rules. How could they possibly apply? Second, our culture has Informed around this collection of documents, revealing the true nature, the true heart of God. And as we as a culture continue to stray, to wander from that influence, it's a good reminder to us as individuals that it is possible to be familiar with Scripture, it is possible to know the history that is revealed in the Bible with ideas about God, and yet to still be far from Him, to miss the point, to yet miss the transformation available to us by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit renewing our minds. But I've heard that too. I've, I've heard that, that famous explanation that we are only flesh and blood. Right? That's used to describe human beings often in relation to their limitations, to their flaws. It's also a way to speak of the, the non-supernatural side. And it's also kind of a reference to a a family member or a relative, my flesh and blood. Matthew chapter 16 verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, when he understood who Jesus was. And then again, a major reference, Paul in in the epistles, in, in, in Ephesians uh, describes the spiritual nature of our ongoing conflicts. Ephesians 6.12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, not just flesh and blood. But, but, but all, of these might just, all of these misunderstandings might just be a further sign of the times, something that underscores the current uh, state of social, um, our, our social interaction in our society. It's usually kind of negative. Now, last episode, we uh, experienced a story that we're going to prequel today. Last episode, we looked at uh, Daniel chapter 5. Today, we're going to try and mix in all of these um, idioms and images into another famous story. It's a story that's about feet. But not just any feet. This is about feet of clay. In our modern usage, this image tends to describe a serious, often hidden character flaw, the downfall, right? We're going to pick up the story. It's already in motion. It's the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. The year is 604 BC. Come on. 604 BC, the powers that be... That'd be very, in Babylon, would very much be King Nebuchadnezzar. And this Romans 13 reference, it's a popular quote in our modern disagreements and discussions right now about authority, about just who really is in charge. This verse essentially says that for better or for worse, all power comes from God. So in 604 BC, we find the recently kidnapped Daniel and the boys hanging out in Babylon, and they are there to be trained up to serve in the vast, sprawling bureaucracy of the Babylonian Empire. Training starts, and it is a full-body training regimen. It involves mind and body. And, well, Daniel and his friends ask to avoid any of the meat because all of the meat had been sacrificed first to Marduk, the Babylonian god. So they request to go vegetarian. This goes well for them and they get off to a great start. They have landed well in this new culture and they have begun to, wait for it, fight the good fight. And this is a direction that Paul gave to his young protege Timothy. It's an encouragement to persist and to overcome any difficulties by doing what is right. So time passes and it gets to be... 604 B.C., the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and he has a big dream. He has not a big empire dream, but an actual dream dream. It's a dream that unsettles him, and he knows that it must be something significant. It's not just something that he 8. It's such a big deal The King Nebuchadnezzar summons all his magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers, all the people who are supposed to be the smart guys, the ones who are supposed to come up with the answers, the ones who are supposed to lead him, guide him towards wisdom to reign and to rule. So he calls all these guys in and he tells them, I've had a dream, not I have a dream, right? And troubles, uh, it bugs him and, and he tells them, I want you to tell me what this dream means. And so they say, okay, they're kind of used to this kind of work. So, okay, great king, may you live forever. Just tell us the dream and we will make something up to tell you what it's about. No problem, right? But King Nebuchadnezzar, he's already feeling like these guys might be a little bit overpaid and underperforming. So he says, you guys, you tell me what my dream was and then tell me what it means. And if you don't, well, things are going to get very bad for you very quickly. I'm tired of you guys trying to fake it until you make it. You tell me my dream and the interpretation of it, or I will have you cut up into little pieces and turn your houses into piles of rubble. Get it right, and it's a big promotion for you. So what I'm kind of asking for you to do is to go ahead and put words in my mouth. And that, that's an unrelated yet poignant Second Samuel reference. Normally it's said about someone who, um, I, I really meant something else, I didn't, that's not what I meant. Don't go putting words in my mouth, right? But here the king is kind of saying, no, go ahead, put the words in my mouth. Tell me what happened to me. Well, of course, the wise guys, they just go off. Oh, King, uh, tell us the dream and we will most happily give you an interpretation. Come on, King, it's quid pro quo, right? There has to be some give and take, but Nebby, nah, he's having none of that. Nope, fellas, you tell me the dream and the interpretation or it's all over for you, right? And by the way, I can totally hear you stalling me right now. Don't do that. Well, as you can imagine, These guys don't like this one bit. And they basically say, even if you searched the four corners of the earth, that's from Isaiah chapter 11, my king, no one, no one can do what you're asking. You can search the length and the breadth, the farthest reaches of the globe, and it won't make any difference. No one can do what you want. So all the magicians, the sorcerers, astrologers, etc., they're all threatened with death. And they say to the king, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 11, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. Or at least God does not yet live among humans, right? That starts at Christmas. So Nebbi looks at them and he thinks to himself from 2 Samuel chapter 1, he's quoting, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Well, guys, I was beginning to think that you were all, you know, a little bit overpaid for the good that you are to me. Fellas, I'm going to reference 2 Kings 20 here and say, it's time to put your house in order. Resolve your personal problems, organize your business affairs because your time is up. The decree is already made, the wheels are in motion. All wise men are to be put to death. Daniel, not there, but he hears about this. And he inquires with wisdom and tact, what happened to make the king so mad? And he gets the executive summary, and then he quickly books an appointment to see the king. He slides in just under the wire in the nick of time, or at the 11th hour. That's from Matthew chapter 20. The last possible moment before it's too late to act or to intervene. Daniel arrives before the king. And he says, king, I can, I can do what you're asking. I just need a little time. So then Daniel leaves and he goes to pray about the answer. And he, he doesn't do this alone. He also asks his, friend, his friends to pray with him. Daniel chapter 20. Two verse seventeen. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And just who are these people, right? How is it that we've never heard of these obviously important friends of Daniel? They're important in his life. How come we don't know? Little time warp. Jump back in time, just a little bit, like a dream sequence in a movie we have to remember. It says, we go back in time just a little bit. Daniel chapter 1, verse 6, and they're talking about who was coming in to Babylon, who has just been scooped up out of Israel and brought over. Among those who were chosen, there were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, always in the same order. Verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. Not Belshazzar, right? But Belteshazzar. Not Belshazzar from last week's episode that was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And then to Hananiah, the name Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego or Abednego. These dynamic veggie buddies are still hanging out with Daniel. They're still a crew. And they know that only God can help, and so they've got to pray together. There is no way that they are going to come out of this alive if God doesn't intervene. So they begin to pray, to communally discern together. They beg God to please move mountains for them. To achieve something that otherwise seems impossible, we get that move mountains from Matthew 17, Matthew 21, Mark 11, 1 Corinthians 13. Please, God, move mountains, reveal the mystery so that we will not be executed. Daniel 2.19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven, 20, and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his, 21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. So whenever true wisdom is found among men, it's a gift from God. And true understanding also a gift from him. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. 23, I thank you. I praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel gets back goes to see the king and he says, I have the dream and the interpretation for you, but right up front, don't misunderstand, please, because this is not because I'm really great and they're all really bad. This interpretation comes from the most high God, just like the dream came as a gift from the God most high. This dream is about things that are yet to come. Uh, And and that takes us to another famous phrase or word, apocalypse or apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Apocalypse writings could be translated as revelation or discourse, disclosure. Um, It's a literary genre, and all literary genres need to be read knowingly and according to their genre type. So this style of writing um, from the dream is highly symbolic and concerns visions or prophecies of the end times or of the age to come. Now, can you think of another historical manuscript in the New Testament that is famous for apocalyptic writings. The book of Revelation, yeah, the book of disclosure. Apocalyptic literature is usually written as code. It's to hide its true nature um, from oppressive elements that are around, but it's formed in such a way as to be hope in dark times. So don't worry. I, I know things are dark now, but these events will unfold to God's desirable conclusion. Things are moving in a good way, even if you don't see it. And that is what this experience is in this small apocalyptic disclosure. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is an apocalyptic dream, and it hints at the history that will unfold and God's plan to save the world, and that plan is Jesus. Here's the dream and the explanation. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. 32, the head of the statue is made of pure gold, the chest and arms of silver, its belly um, and thighs of bronze. 33, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. There are your feet of clay. I told you that we would get to the feet of clay. The gold head is Nebuchadnezzar, the empire of Babylon. And there's some debate over the exact representations, but most scholars tend to agree that the other kingdoms made up, that made up the Colossus are. So, head, head of gold is Babylon. Then, the, the breast of silver is the empire of the Medes and the Persians, started by Cyrus the Great in about 539 BC, which is what we talked about last episode, when that transition really happened. Belly and thighs of brass or bronze, that's Greece. Alexander the Great, starting in about 330 BC. The legs and feet of iron clay, that's the Roman Empire. The diminishing value of those metals from gold to silver to bronze to iron represents the decreasing power and grandeur of the rulers of the successive empires. The metals also symbolize a growing degree of toughness and endurance with each successive empire lasting longer than the previous one. So the message to Israel who is in captivity in Babylon, that that, uh, kingdom that you've all been waiting for, longing for, it's not time for that just yet. But here is the hope laid out for you. God's agenda, despite the mighty nations of the world, moves forward. God is not surprised by the wars and the rumors of wars, the the times of of nations rising up against nation. These mighty nations, they come and they go, but they will all be superseded by the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom that does not look like, that does not behave like all of the many nations that have risen and fallen. The kingdom of God can never be destroyed, This would for them and should for us continue to give Israel and us ongoing hope. Daniel 2, 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. Verse 44, And in those times, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left, To another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and will bring them to an end. And it will itself endure forever. Daniel comes through, explains the the dream, saves the lives of himself, his friends, and all the other wise men. And so, with that fantastic news, it is now time for them to all eat, drink, and be merry. The jovial call from Ecclesiastes 8 or Luke 12 for others to enjoy themselves and to make the most of the moment, usually at a party or a celebration. That kingdom that was carved from the mountain but not by human hands, that kingdom will will, will come and overshadow and and outlast all of the other kingdoms. That is the kingdom of God brought into existence and purchased through the story of of Jesus. Jesus first, everything else after. Watching the story of Jesus unfold in the Gospels and then through the book of Acts is an exercise in ground-breaking, earth-shattering experiences. Everywhere he he went, he infused new meaning, new understanding and transformation. Just so much transformation. His experiences and the descriptions of them continue to reverberate in our culture with more images with more idioms, with more illustrations. His influence continues on through the New Testament, in the epistles, the letters written by the apostles, working out it, fleshing out the teachings of Jesus into more and more real-life scenarios. The struggle is to follow the way of the Spirit. It's as real now as it was back then. It's follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit or look for rules. And then loopholes to those rules. The Apostle Paul, he pinpointed this problem when he gifted us the phrase, the letter of the law. To the fullness and the precise wording of the law with no consideration to any perceived intent or spirit in which it was given. Big problem for us now. 2 Corinthians chapter 3.6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life into one. Together, we are to seek Jesus and submit to each other as we mutually discern the guidance of the Spirit for each of us. This is the way forward. That is the road trip. Jesus has set us free from the kingdom of sin and darkness and death and brought us into the kingdom of life and love and light and grace. Part of the story of Jesus goes through hardship. Not everyone wants him to reign. Not everyone wants to submit themselves, regardless of how good he is. And there are still systems of power and control that are held tightly to. And in those kingdoms, you might very well hear the command, bring me his head on a platter. And in our common cultural idioms that it's now an exaggerated kind of warning for some sort of harsh punishment He's in big trouble. She's, get her in here. I want to talk to her. But for John the Baptist, <clears throat> that was his death sentence. That young girl's request on behalf of her mother was really and truly John's kiss of death, which is an event or an action that's often ironic that certainly will cause disaster or cause something to fail. That's how we experience it in our world. But that event that froze this concept into our collective. Cultural carbonite was that the disciple Judas betrayed his master Jesus in front of the temple guard's mob by greeting him with a kiss. A kiss that led directly to his capture, imprisonment, beatings, false trial, scourging, crucifixion, and then death. Who knew what darkness could flow from a kiss? Who, who knew what hope could flow from such betrayal. And all along the way, the case had to pass before the regional governor. His name is, well, his title is Pilate. Pilate wanted nothing to do with the case or the people bringing the case to him. He finally gave in to their wishes, but he wanted them to know that responsibility lay on their hands, not his. So he ceremonially washed his hands. He hoped like many of us hoped to wash your hands of the matter, to absolve responsibility for something contentious, therefore distancing yourself from possible future blame. But history remembers him as culpable. After his horrifying death, the words that Jesus had spoken earlier in Matthew 16, they took on an even more ominous tone. Jesus called all sorts of people to follow him, people like you, people like me, People who would feel like there is no possible way that he could mean me, how would he call me? But he called us all equally to take up your cross. And there's a hardship or a burden or a sacrifice that you must endure. Matthew 16 24 Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross and follow me. Pick up death to yourself. Pick up your humiliation. Pick up your other's first mindset. Pick up your identification with Christ and follow the only one who knows the way to life. True life. Eternal life. And that's the invitation to you as well, to follow. Kind Father, thank you for the gift that we have of Jesus, in Jesus and through Jesus, all of these gifts. Thank you for someone that we can look at to follow. Thank you for not just making a list of rules that I will undoubtedly try to get out of, try to find the limit for, How much do I have to do? How little do I have to do? How much do I have to do? I I, want to know. But you've given us the gift of the Spirit instead. That would guide us. That would call us to, to heights that are previously unimagined. That would empower us as we go. That would transform our heart and our mind. How could we ever imagine where you can see us in 10 years, in 5 years, in 50 years? Without you, that, that, that path just seems untenable. But with you, with you, even those things that we find to be impossible can become possible. So Spirit, awaken us. Fan into flame a passion inside that we might, in fact, fight the good fight. That we might face whatever it is we are called to face. With the knowledge that we are never alone. We are empowered into partnership that brings about our transformation. And the transformation of the world. Serving in the revealing of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that will never end the kingdom that can never be destroyed. Thanks for choosing us. Thanks for allowing us to to be in on it with you. Thanks for knowing who we are and what we're like and still turning to us with a wink in your eye saying, come on, follow me into more than you ever dreamed more than you ever hoped. May you find us faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.